Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world. Using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration and communication, Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equity and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, Delhi. And Quilt AI believes that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. Yes, the internet has been used to index data, store photos and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Larry Kramer, who is the president of the Hewlett Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. This is an incredible outfit that has net assets of $11 billion. We're going to be talking about the work they do. We're going to have a really fascinating conversation about Larry, his background as dean of Stanford Law School, and the work they're doing at the foundation. And we're going to be focusing on climate, climate change, and the sense of urgency that we should all embrace in order to tackle this crisis. So without further ado, Larry, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to have the chance. Excellent. Well, thanks for making the time. I know you're busy. You're out there in the West Coast. I'm here in London. So it's uh, it'll be a good a good chat. Why don't well, we start? All our, mutual, well, all our mutual acquaintances say such nice things about you that I was excited to do this. I did well. Likewise, you know, you have a big fan base across <laughs> across <laughs> the spectrum of philanthropy. Why don't we kick off by finding out a little bit about the uh, the Hewlett Foundation, or I guess formerly the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation? So Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard together started the Hewlett Packard Company, which I think most people know today as HP. And each of them took their personal fortunes and started an independent foundation. So there's the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and then there's the Dave and Lucille Packard Foundation. We actually are sort of cousins and we work together on a lot of things. Um, the Hewlett Foundation um, started, you know, like many do as a kind of kitchen table vehicle for Bill and Flora to do their personal philanthropy. But as their wealth grew and it got larger, they professionalized it in the mid-1970s, brought in a president, Roger Hines, who had been the chancellor of Berkeley. And he took the areas in which they were giving and formulated our core programs around them. So sort of the foundation since the beginning in 1966 has been working in the areas of education, the environment, um, it started as a population program. It's really women's rights, um, you know, women's reproductive health and family planning um, and performing arts right. uh, and the Bay Area. And then, you know, it's grown. And as it's grown, we've taken on other things and strategies have modified. We still work in those core areas, but we've added work in philanthropy itself. Mm -hmm. We have a democracy program, a cybersecurity initiative, an initiative on rethinking political economy or economics that we're right now calling um, we haven't decided on a name for sure. It might be society and economy. It might be reimagining capitalism, something like that, um, you know, and so on. So we work across a really broad array of areas. Amazing. Amazing. And now climate is one of those things that I guess it probably touches on pretty much just about every thematic area you focus on anyway, right? I mean, you can't look at education or development or something else without having an eye on climate in some, in some way. Well, at least in the sense that if we don't, 
if we don't hit the climate mitigation window, then everything everybody else is doing in every other area is just going to be undone by the cascading social and economic effects of it. Um, so, you know, in that sense, certainly we're, we're actually, the Hewlett Foundation has been the largest climate funder in the world um, since at least 2007. I think we're going to cede that title this year uh, to any number of people, Jeff Bezos um, or the SIF Foundation. You know, there's a few other funders who, and SIF has been in it for a while. They've been growing steadily. Um, but, you know, we've been, we've been making grants of somewhere between 120 and $130 million every year since at least 2007 on climate. Right. And for our listeners who don't know, SIF is the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Yeah, close partner. Close partner. Excellent. Now, one thing that I, I knew about um, and quite a few of my guests know about, but many people may be listening to this don't, but I noticed referenced in your in, in the Hewlett Foundation's website as well, is that uh, the amount of philanthropic funding that actually goes for climate to tackle climate is is just under 2%. Globally. Globally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's about twenty-five percent of our grant making goes to. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm not referring yeah, yeah. to, but, to but you. But globally, guys, but globally, yeah, it's uh, it's about just just about two percent. That's right. Um, which, when you think about the nature of the problem, is um, puzzling. Yeah, that's an understatement. That's a very nice way of putting it. Yeah, um, as I say, for me, the way I think about climate, I, I touched on it before, which is, it's not that it's the only important problem. All the other problems that people work on are important. All the other problems we at the Hewlett Foundation work on, I think, are important and worth working on. Um, the problem is, climate is different from other problems because, you know, most problems, it's like, take global poverty. That is a huge problem. We want to do what we can to fix it. We can fix a little bit in a place and then keep working and so on. Maybe we'll never fully solve it, but we can keep making progress and so on. With climate, once we hit around two degrees, there's a couple of tipping points that happen, right? The ice sheets melt in Greenland and in the Antarctic and, and the permafrost melts, you know, in Alaska and Siberia, and that releases a massive amount of methane into the atmosphere. And then the temperature rise shoots up from two to something like four or five degrees. And at that kind of temperature increase, it's not that humanity becomes extinct. It's that the social and economic and political consequences are so great that it, there's no way our existing systems can handle them. So think of it this way, 6 million people migrated from Syria to Europe because of a drought, which was itself climate related. And it, it caused immense havoc in European politics. That's 6 million. Now imagine if it's 250 million people or 300 million people migrating from all over the world into the few places that you know, are still potentially uh, livable. <laughs> Um, you know, and then you get wars and your food chains are disrupted. And in the meantime, while that's happening, you've got these constant storms and droughts and famines and wildfires and, you know, all of these cascading effects are happening at once. So it's, you know, it, and, and we have a chance to keep that from happening, but the window on it is rapidly closing. Yeah. And there is a chance to do something about it, as you point out. And yeah. this, that we need to embrace a sense of urgency. Now with a balance sheet, the size of, of yours, um, where does one start? So I was reading a, a really interesting report from Quilt AI, who are who are sponsors of our of our show. And one of the things that they were saying is that you know within social media, digital, one of the biggest angles that they, that they're seeing people backing is sort of policy change. Like it seems that you know there's a huge drive to change policy. And I noticed on your website, for instance, you have a, quite a strong emphasis on you know let's drive forward infrastructure or let's. Um, 
let's get other philanthropic uh, participants in there. How does one, where does one start? Where does one start? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing, I think you just put your finger on why only 2% of philanthropy is involved. Because I think for most people, they go like, where do I start? I have no idea. So I'm going to do something that I feel like I can get my arms around. Right. We have as a result, not just Hewlett, but with a group of our partners who are the longstanding funders in climate, created a, a mechanism. We call it the Climate Leadership Initiative or CLI, whose function is to help new funders find their way into the field. Because the fact of the matter is, it's a kind of all of the above that needs to be done. So mm -hmm. think of it, you know, this way. We need, we need to, on the one hand, a whole lot of different government policies to uh, create a smooth transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, you know, you can't just shut off the fossil fuel industry today. People need energy. You would devastate the economy in the world and uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. So you have to have a transition. And that needs to be managed through policy. Um, at the same time, you need massive investment in the new infrastructure that you're going to have. And so you also need markets. Um, and so you need sort of, and, and I should say, we've got about 80% of the technologies that we need to do this, but we still have gaps in the technology. Things are far along, but we need to finish those out. And so we need investment in R&D as well. So all of those things have to happen. No one funder can do that. So we need not just more money, but also more funders. We need human capital as much as you know, financial capital to, to be moving this thing along. And it needs to be happening everywhere, right? So we focus at Hewlett on the major emitters, the United States, China, India, Europe. Um, then we have secondary work you know, in Indonesia, Brazil, where the forests are and, and so on. Um, but, you know, Africa, Southeast Asia, they are not yet major emitters, but the growth that they're having is such that if we don't get ahead of it and have them grow with non-fossil based energy, we're going to have a huge problem from that in the next generation. So, so, you know, that's why it needs so much work, but it's all doable. That's what's so striking. I mean, I mean, the truth is there have been enough people doing enough of the research and funding and thinking that, that if somebody wants to learn how and where they can make a difference every little bit counts you don't need to be a major major funder to make a difference on climate you just need to be thoughtful and see yourself as part of an effort that many many people are working on and find the place to plug yeah or plug in and one of the areas that well i mean i guess there, there's different preferences of where one could tackle climate but um you and i sort of exchanged a couple of emails and also we, we delved into a little bit of like climate repair and that seemed to be like an area that you thought yeah but well, so, okay, one of the other big debates in the climate world, the climate, the effects of climate are happening right now. People are being hurt right now. And so there is a big debate, which, you know, in the climate world is adaptation. So how do we adapt to the changes that the, are already happening to the climate versus mitigation, which is how do we prevent further changes from happening? There are instances where those overlap. So you can do something that mitigates that also helps adaptation. Um, you can think of things like, um, improving cooling, right? Uh, refrigeration and um, air conditioners, making them cheaper and more efficient, and that'll help people now. It'll also, you know, in, in hot countries that are getting hotter, it'll also uh, reduce emissions going forward. Agricultural reform has that effect and so on. Um, but, you know, my view is if you, if you have to choose, mm -hmm. we have to do mitigation now. And that's only because we have 10 to 20 years and then we go over a cliff so that the amount of adaptation that is going to be needed if we miss that mitigation window is vastly larger than it will be if we don't. 
the people in the future are going to be hurt vastly more. And the people who you're helping now, that help is going to be undone. So I know it's so tempting to want to help the people who are being hurt now. That's our natural instinct. But, you know, to me, it's, it's short-sighted because you're not going to be helping those people. You're helping them, you know, and then you're going to hurt them later. And you're going to hurt everybody else later and hurt everybody a lot more. That's, that's you know, our view. Now, in the, in the real world, you know, there are lots of people working on adaptation, lots of people working on mitigation. We work on mitigation. We partner with people who are working on adaptation where it has mitigation benefits. And we're all for that. But again, there are choices. I would take, you know, you know two, two pounds of mitigation over a pound of mitigation and a pound of adaptation myself um, because of the way I view the problem. I'm with you. I'm with you. And this 20-year horizon after which we, we have a very unpleasant cliff, uh, I don't know how optimistic you're feeling about things. And I guess at least one could probably say, one could par- probably sensibly say that at least we now have four years of that 20-year time window where there might be a, a presidency that's going to be a little bit more favorably disposed to tackling climate change seriously. Well, yeah, the 20 years, I mean, that's 20 years if we get started aggressively now. Right. The idea is we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050. In order to get to net zero by 2050, a whole lot of changes have to happen um, that, you know, uh, if we start on them now, we can make them happen. Um, we were, you know, it's the climate thing is, is so interesting because, you know, in 2008, things were looking optimistic and then Copenhagen failed and the Obama energy failed in the U.S. And then it looked really bad through the first Obama term. Not much happened. And then he really put his oar in the water in his second term and a huge amount of progress was made till 2016. 2016 was a high point. Paris, Kigali, you know, the um, which was a cooling agreement. There was an agreement in the um, shipping industry and in the air industry. And then Trump got elected and we've had four years of um, stalled progress as a result. Um, I think there's a chance to resume now. Things can turn around really fast. That's what we've seen. Um, and we need them to. And, uh, you know, we'll see how, how it goes. Um, I'm hopeful at the moment. Um, and, of course, we have to keep plugging away no matter what, because, as I said, the consequences are unimaginable. They're unacceptable. They're unimaginable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And tell me, in terms of the grants that you're awarding, the, the work that you're doing, the different programs that you're doing w- within climate, w- what do those look like? What are the, if there are some flagship programs, um, what's the sort of stuff that's happening as a consequence of your engagement? So Hewlett is, we're kind of everywhere, precisely because, you know, the, um, there was very little climate, there was a tiny little bit of climate philanthropy prior to 2007. In 2007, the Hewlett Foundation got together with the Packard Foundation and the McKnight Foundation, and the three foundations committed a billion dollars over five years and launched an organization called Climate Works. And Climate Works, that was an effort to do a kind of centralized command and control effort to get a global coordinated strategy. It was a really brilliant idea. Um, and that launched the modern climate field. It ultimately, while it had a lot of successes, it ultimately didn't work because you couldn't have a coordinated centralized effort that way. Funders, too many of funders want to do things a little bit their own way. So we needed to find different ways to partner with them. You couldn't have one organization in San Francisco that everybody in the world was going to follow. You know, there were all sorts of reasons it didn't work. But when we've shifted Climate Works, which is still a really, really important player on the global stage, um, you know, we picked up a lot of the slack. So we are sort of core funders for many of the major organizations in all of the major emitting countries. And so we're in, whether it's, you know, energy, 
appliances, buildings, forestation, carbon dioxide removal, Hewlett's in all of it. Um, our hope in bringing in new funders is there's still a lot of areas that are not properly covered. So there's too little funding in carbon dioxide removal. There's almost no funding in agriculture. There's almost, you know, too little funding um, in Southeast Asia and Africa, you know, the regions that we know we need to cover and so on. So in, in looking for new funders, we're hoping they'll fill those gaps. But if they don't, if they wanted to do the same kinds of things we're doing, I think we could shift our funding there because money is fungible. And, and so, you know, so that's how we look at it right now, though, we're spread very thinly across everything and is that part of your your um your wish obviously it is in terms of engaging new funders but is that something that keeps your team busy like literally actively going out there and saying like which are the foundations out there that that have resources that that aren't really doing stuff and let's get them on board well it's not my team i mean we created the climate leadership initiative precisely because we didn't think we were the best or right people to do that so it's a big part of my job um, part of the governing board for the climate leadership initiative, but that's what that organization does. It does it in conversation with all of us because we're obviously getting information. But you know, for for my team and the teams of most of the other core funders, they're busy enough just figuring out what to fund to be making progress, um, as opposed to spending time recruiting new funders. Although they help, you know, they help. They'll talk to people. And the grants you make. Are they uh, generally multi-year grants? So what, what do those relationships look like if there is such a thing as an average, you know? So this is a broad Hewlett Foundation commitment. Um, you know, I don't know how much you know about Bill and Dave. Um, the HP company was famous for something called the HP way, mm -hmm. which was a way of organizing, which was quite radical at the time and actually is still quite radical today. But, you know, among the core premises were um, you set expectations, you find good people, and then you give them the space to accomplish whatever it is that you've tried to accomplish. And they both brought that philosophy into their foundations. So we have across the foundation a really deep commitment to multi-year general operating support. About 70% of our grants are unrestricted. Right. Um, we look for partners and then we give them the funding and expect them to work. We, we wanna be in partnership with them, but we're not telling them what or how to do. We try and develop relationships where they can talk to us and we can share and so on. So, um, so as I say, most of our grants are are in are unrestricted that's good that's good a lot of people you know they think that the big foundations only do restricted but uh. well that has been generally true if you look at the data you know from the center for effective philanthropy or candid mm -hmm. um but that's hopefully you know one of the things with covid right was in the immediate wake of covid a whole bunch of funders came out and said okay we recognize this is going to be really hard so we're going to take the restrictions off our grants and and you know my hope is they will they will see actually it doesn't make not only doesn't make a difference but in many or most cases you can actually accomplish your ends better when you do that in which case they'll stick with it yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah yeah one of the reasons i will say i just have to add this is you know we want these organizations to build some resiliency for things like downturns, you know, and they can't build resiliency when you give them tightly restricted project funding and then underfund the project to boot. Um, whereas if you give them the funding and the flexibility to figure out how best to do it, they can do things like build reserves, develop resilient processes and so on. Um, so I think generally it's a really important. So in your case, would it be fair to say that maybe with this whole pandemic, you didn't have to radically adapt what you were doing anyway, because you were already giving your grantees quite a bit of latitude to. Yes. That's right. That's right. We also had, there were, there were, there was, I don't know how much you want to get into some of the other issues and debates. One of the other, you know, problems is um, to the extent that 
well, as it turned out, of course, the markets held up. Hopefully, they'll make it through another year. But at first, it looked like the markets were going to drop through the bottom. And all funders were like, oh, my God, we're going to have to cut our funding. And then, you know, the critics were like, you can't cut your funding now. You have to increase your funding now. And, and of course, yes, that means you won't have any money when the next downturn comes. But we'll worry about that then. And maybe there'll be a whole lot more rich people who will fill in the gap at that time, you know. And, um, you know, after 2009, when we did cut our budgets, um, we learned a lesson. And the lesson we learned was let's not have that happen again. So as our endowment grew back, we didn't put it all back into the programs. We split it 60, 40, 60% back into the programs, 40% into what we keep as unallocated funds that we use year to year when the markets hold up, which is most years, hopefully, um, for one-time things, for additional things in programs to respond to special opportunities and so on. But if there is a downturn, we can cut there Mm-hmm. maintain our full support for our existing grantees and in doing that then adjust our spending so that we're also protecting future grantees right right because if i spend more now i mean that's great except it means i will by definition have less to spend in the future and unless you believe and i think it's naive to believe that future needs are going to be less then you're essentially trading you're essentially you know trading off uh, present versus future. It's unavoidable. So I think we found a way. What we give up is neither our present support nor our future support, but we give up our present flexibility to do new and different things to some extent. And to me, that seemed like the best trade-off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I'll ask you a question. We don't need to ask this question, but I'll ask it to you because it came up on the research, which is about you know your, your endowment. You have this $11 billion endowment, and there has been so you know, my old university, they've divested from fossil fuels and stuff like that. And it has, you know, and I noticed that, that on your side, it's not something that you're able to do right now. And I guess partly because you're huge, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Um, and, and, and do you feel sure. comfortable for me to have that in there or not? Because, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's so a, let me ask so, you about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So first, let me say it's a complicated question, although most people, like in everything today, want to pretend that all debates are simple and all answers are Kantian moral rights and wrongs. So it's not. It's a complicated question. So And there's not unanimity within my own organization on what we should do. I mean, we have a policy which was arrived at after a long debate, but not because everybody was like, oh, yeah, of course. So let's let me just acknowledge that up front, although I think we have the right policy. So here's how I think about it. First, the, the, the question about whether to have some of your endowment invested in fossil fuels is a, question, is, is, is a moral question, but it is not a Kantian moral question, like it is inherently right or wrong to do this, because it's not a Kantian problem. It's a utilitarian problem. As I said earlier, the question is we must get off of fossil fuels and onto renewable and, and clean energy, but we, we can't do that today. You wouldn't, no one would shut off the fossil fuel industry today, even if they could. It would devastate the world. So the question is, what's the best way to make that transition? In which case, to me, then, the investing question is wholly a question of impact. So, so what is the most effective set of things we can do? Divesting is a tactic, much like should I invest in carbon dioxide removal or should I invest in, you know, moving retail banks to change their investing policies or should I invest in, you know, pick your choice, uh, battery and battery technology or should I divest? All of them are designed to have some kind of effect or impact on making that transition. And the question with divestment is, is it an effective tool to do that? Net, relatively speaking. So for, for, for instance, if I'm a foundation that's not doing any climate work and I want to have some climate impact, 
divest. It might have some small effect. Why not? You know, it'll hurt your returns, maybe. That's the second question. Does it hurt your returns or not? It depends on who you are. So, you know, fund manager, we don't, we don't do individual investments. I couldn't choose to divest from fossil fuels only because we can't, man, we, we, we have $11 billion and a team of, you know, we have three directors. I mean, we invest in funds. The fund managers have strategies. They're not changing their strategies for us. Most of them have lines out the door, people who want to invest with them. So if I go to them and say, you know what? get rid of fossil fuels, they'll say, no, if you don't like it, take your money else. I don't need you. I've got 30, next 30 people who will give me their money to invest. So, so the question is, do the managers that we're investing in, relative to the managers we'd have to invest in, if we sh wanted to shift and say, well, we'll only go with funds that don't have fossil fuels, can they generate the same kinds of returns? And the answer for us is clearly no. It's just not even close. Um, you know, there, there are some what are called ESG funds. Most of them actually still have fossil fuels. Put that aside. Um, most, some of them get high, high returns, usually because of overweighting in technology, which is because they're okay in environment, but they're really bad on SNG. Um, but most of them are too small to take investments on the scale that we want. So we couldn't invest in them even if we wanted to, uh, you know, and so on. So when we look at our investment portfolio and our capacity to invest, to divest would hurt our returns significantly, meaning we would have less resources with which to do the grant making. And as such, you know, the, it's going to reduce our impact. So I once put this to the team, like if you have a, think of divesting as a, as a grant, it's a negative grant, but it's a grant, right? So it'll have an impact. The impact is not going to be on the economics of the fossil fuel industry because we're $11 billion is not even a drop in the bucket, right? Every endowment in the world could divest from fossil fuels, every, you know, foundation and and you know the market would absorb it in a week we'd be back where we were so it's not that it's in some notion of helping build a political movement although when organizations like hewlett divest it's like oh that's a shocking statement the hewlett foundation <laughs> thinks climate change is bad as if anybody didn't know that already so so the benefit in terms of helping to build a political movement strike us as less than what we can do with the grant dollars supporting organizations building a political movement now, that's our assessment. Not everybody is going to agree with that. I get it. Just like not everybody agrees that we should focus on carbon dioxide removal as opposed to battery technology, right? There are tactical disagreements within the climate world, and that's a good thing because then we have a little bit of everything. For some reason, as I say, people layer this moral thing on top of it and, and, a, mis and a misplaced moral value in my view, because as I say, they treat it like it's Kantian when it's just utilitarian. So our assessment has been that we can have greater impact the way we're working and that to make a gesture for what for us would be a gesture because it will have relatively little impact compared to what it costs us in our ability to actually advance the climate agenda. It doesn't make sense to do it. I don't think that's true for everybody. And I think some people may prefer the political statement that they get to make, think that's a powerful point. And, you know, I don't condemn them for that. I just don't happen to agree that it makes sense for us. Yeah, no, fascinating and really insightful. Really, really fascinating. Now, the way you're, you're, you're delving into the morality of the question might lead one to think that you're a solicitor or a lawyer. And um, one of the things that I found really fascinating about your background is that you used to be the dean of Stanford Law School. Um, tell us a little bit about how, you, which I think is incredible. It's great. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you how you landed up where you are today and your trajectory. What's your 
What's your narrative? How did you? Sure. Uh, yeah. My life is a series of accidents. So I was, you know, born and raised in a kind of blue collar neighborhood in Chicago with a tiny little Jewish enclave. And uh, of that generation where I was told from the moment I was born that I was going to be a doctor. Jewish mother, you know, I'm, you're going to be a doctor. And I got to college expecting to be a doctor. And one semester in college, I realized I have no interest in being a doctor. And I took some classes. I took a class on religious ethics and moral issues and a class in psychology. And both of them completely fascinated me. So I ended up majoring in psychology and religion. Graduated from college, no idea what I wanted to do, none. So I moved to New York, got a job, was hanging out with friends, thought I wanted to be a writer. I, I was terrible, but I didn't know that. And my mom was so on my case to like, if I wasn't going to go to medical school, then I needed to then go to law school, right? It was like doctor, lawyer, accountant. Those were the three <laughs> choices I had in life. So I, I finally, I agreed to go to law school um, to get her off my back with planning to go for like six, eight weeks, drop out, say I tried it. I hated it. I'm going back to New York. Now, the thing that I had loved when I, I got, I went to college at Brown and I think it was a mistake that I got in there too. I had no business getting in. But I did for whatever reason. And it had been the first place where people took ideas seriously. And I loved that too. So I knew I wanted some kind of career in the academy, but I didn't have a field. Anyway, so I went to law school planning to drop out. And um, there was a course taught by Edward Levy, who was the attorney general for Gerald Ford. He'd been the president at the University of Chicago, the dean of the law school. One of the really great figures of that mid 20th century generation and uh, the course blew my mind. Uh -huh. It was so amazing. I had never understood how interesting law could be. The, the course started with the debate between Thrasymachus and Socrates on whether might makes right. It ended 1,800 pages later with Roe v. Wade. And you did essentially everything in between. It was like history and philosophy and, you know, and law. And, oh, it was so amazing. I became Levy's research assistant, worked for him for three years, stayed in law school, and became a legal academic. Um, and, uh, and, and, and eventually a constitutional lawyer and a constitutional historian. And that was just the way, you know, the way things went. Um, and then at a point I realized, you know, I'm a pretty good scholar. <laughs> I like my work. I've enjoyed doing it, but you know, I'm not one for the ages, I think. Um, you know, so 50 years from now, is anybody going to be reading my scholarship? Unlikely. Um, and I still wanted to do something that had more meaning in the world. I knew universities. And so when the opportunity to become a dean came up, um, I grabbed it and, and went to Stanford. And because I believe even if I wasn't going to be the scholar who changed the world, I think these institutions are really important. I think they matter a ton. And I learned how much they matter when I was dean and I would talk to a, alums who had gone on to have these amazing effects in the world. And, and they would talk about how important these three years had been for them as they had been for me. So that felt really worthwhile. So I was dean. And the thing about being a dean is, is you have a half-life of about 10 years. Okay. After 10 years, even if the faculty likes what you're doing, they get tired of you. It's like eating vanilla ice cream for 10 years. You know, it's like enough. I need new flavor. <laughs> um, so I wanted to do something else. By then, I had not been doing scholarship for a while. I wasn't sure I wanted to go back to the faculty. But if you want to do something other than go back to the faculty, you have to do it from the deanship or you're never going back. So in my eighth year, I started to think about what I might want to do otherwise. And one of the possibilities was the Hewlett Foundation. Um, it was a fantasy job. You know, I knew about it because it was nearby because the then president, Paul Brest, had been one of my predecessors at the law school and I knew him well. So I thought I knew the foundation and it seemed like a really interesting opportunity. And so when Paul announced he was stepping down during my eighth year as dean, I put my head in the ring um, and got the job. 
it was a surprise. I think they had to have a special meeting. Like, can we, can we give this job to two deans of the Stanford Law School in a row? Doesn't that look a little weird? Um, and, uh, and so that's how, and, and I, it was because I thought philanthropy would be kind of like being a law school dean in that, you know, as a dean, you are responsible for resources that you make available to improve and enhance the work of students, faculty, alums, staff, you know, and so on. Um, and that's true for philanthropy, but only in the abstract. I got there only to discover it's a really complex trade. It's not something everybody can do. In fact, one of the big beefs I have with so many of the new philanthropists is they don't really want to learn. They come in thinking anybody can do this. You know, I, I can give away money. Let me hear from some organizations. I'll create some some metrics and boom, I'm off and done. And, and there's a lot of bad philanthropy going on out there. Yeah. You know, we could have a conversation that goes on for a few hours, I have a feeling here, unfortunately. We just have 30 minutes. Um, Happy to talk again. Yeah, well, you're definitely coming back. Tell me a little bit about the, um, the, the key takeaway, if there is one, that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after, uh, after they finish listening to today's episode. So I'll focus the key takeaway around climate. Mm -hmm. And to me, the key takeaway around climate is, is just recognition that it is foundational, which is to say the foundation on which all the other things we want to do rests presupposes the existence of, of a stable systems, stable environment and set of systems that if we don't keep the globe with the global warming below a certain level are going to come apart and when they come apart everything else comes apart with it and although it feels like it's far off it's we're like it's like if you drop a ball now yes it will hit the ground in the future but we're dropping the ball now and we need to catch it and that to me would be the most important thing to recognize that's why it has to have doesn't have to supersede everything else you're doing we also need a world to save yeah. But it needs more attention and it needs some attention from everybody thoughtfully and in partnership with all the other people who've been at this for a while so that we can get this thing under control. Very, very well said. Very well said. Uh, Larry, it has been an absolute pleasure hosting you the Do One Better podcast today. And to our listeners, uh, thank you as always for tuning in and uh, subscribing and following. You've been listening to Larry Kramer, who is the president of the Hewlett Foundation who's really had uh, amazing insight today. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great fun. Great to meet. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.